fed up with the same old day-in, day-out menu of meals that, while you enjoy them, you fancy something a bit different, a bit more special, to talk about the next day. Everybody should enjoy cooking tasty varied meals and whether you can put a bean and a toast together and that's your range or you're so good you'd get rid of some of the frowns in Ramsay's face then Gusto provides the solutions for some healthy irresistible meals that cater for all. I love to cook around the busy lifestyle that I lead and I'll always have a dabble at something different so I've found Gusto perfect for me. Since it was founded in 2012 They've been giving you everything you need to create the most incredible home-cooked meals from scratch, delivering to your door perfectly pre-portioned, completely fresh ingredients, meaning next to zero food waste for them and you, and the simplest to follow recipe cards with a selection of over 250 each month that you can choose from to cater for your tastes. Choose what you fancy, leave what you don't, and that are delivered to your door when you want them to be. Some of the recipes I've been sent from Gusto I'd never dreamed of cooking, some I'd even never come across before, but I have to say I've loved. It's especially great because there's no hours and hours of delicate and intricate prep involved either, which can put people off. Just follow the simple instructions and you're onto a winner with it. Whether you want a decent yet different tea after a long day in work, or you want a tea that's worthy of Instagramming first, there really is something for everyone with Gusto. Head to gusto.co.uk and use code TRUECRIMEENTHUSIAST for 60% off your first box and 25% off all boxes for two months. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you feel you're at your best, don't you feel you can do great things? It may be you finally finished that project that's been dragging on and on, or you're loving a new pastime that you found because you're smashing it. There's loads that can make us feel like this. But equally, there can be all sorts of things in life that congregate at the same time and leave you feeling like you're stuck in a mire, which means that if so, then you feel you aren't that best version of you that you want to be. Now, something beneficial in times such as this is therapy. I don't mind saying that I've had my own times in the past where things have come at me and I've found that talking to someone has been beneficial. Because therapy isn't just a great band, or for those who've experienced trauma in their lives, not at all. It can help you to learn how to develop boundaries for yourself, learn skills how to cope with things, all good stuff to help you be the best version of you that there is. Because when you feel like that, there's no stopping you, you're like an Avenger. If you're considering therapy as a route for yourself to take, then better help is a great option. It's entirely online, affordable and convenient. It also really couldn't be simpler to do. It takes merely filling out a short questionnaire and as quick as, you'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist suited for your needs. If you proceed and you feel that it isn't working for you after a time, then you can simply switch therapists whenever you wish with no extra charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around, I'm refraining from saying where from for a week, as apparently someone is going around the US murdering podcasters. Yeah, straight up. 
where I bring you tales of true crime that I try to be ones off the beaten track, for the unfamiliar and obscure is always much more interesting to me than any of the hyped crap that saturates the genre, and try to make them tales you may not believe, you may be horrified with, but that are all true and are ones that I hope you remember. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, my feline folio dupe, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here as ever. And we've been waiting for you to complete us, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show my privilege to bring to. It is as wonderful as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So as we approach the end of the month, it comes to Patreon week time. So after this episode, we have a slight break in the regular enthusiast while I do so. I can't do both in the same week to the standard I command on myself. But I've been doing that for a while now, and I'm sure you've come to notice that. On the subject of Patreon, and I am catching up a bit here, having not mentioned it for a couple of episodes. Big thanks go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs here to Karen Mather, Victoria Bellotti, Sarah Starr, Alison Jones, Stevie Tiller, Darren McKenna, Helen Cargill, Caroline B, Lawrence Browning, Carl Owens, Non, Gary Moon, R. Dawn and Kathleen H, plus Sharon Straker, Emily Grant and Doc Hill, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name there. Now, thank you so much, all. It's so very appreciative of you to do that. And if, like this kind lot, you yourself fancy some extra enthusiast, and you're intrigued as to what tales such as Mr. Whiskers, The Butcher of Cumdy, Joyce's Story, The Evil Eyes of Loxton, or the latest tale that's out, Home Invasion, to name just a few of the full series plus that there are, what they're all about, then to do so is easier than the hairdresser has it when Boris Johnson steps in there. And you can be on it quicker than a pundit kicked off match of the day. Over Twitter. I mean, fucking hell, grow up. Simply head over to Patreon and seek out the show there. It's easy to find. But always remember that podcast suffix. Or skip even that and just use the link that is ever present in the episode show notes. With the show contact details that will take you right to it. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we have a bit of a break from the norm and it's something a bit more light-hearted, which I feel is a bit necessary. I do try to have a working list of tales for each series. I try not to get multi-parters in too close a succession, but it almost never works out anything near to the series I've sketched out. I actually use about 10% of what I earmark and the rest just sort of choose themselves weirdly. Whenever we have a particular run of harrowing cases, I like to have a bit of a break from that. It's as refreshing for me to do as I hope it is for you to hear. And I'm aware that this series has probably started more harrowing than any I can remember. We've had some horrific and chilling tales already, and we're just six episodes in. So this time around, I want to bring something a bit lighter that may make you smile in parts, have sympathy in others, but hopefully really agree with the title I've given the episode. I always love to try something a bit different, because if you don't, you never know what works and what shirks, do you? 
What I always do as I'm researching tales for the series, if I find a snippet of something that's a bit strange whilst I am, make a note of it, and I'm reaching into the catalogue of that that I've composed so far for this time around, because it builds up, and who knows, the Patreon episode coming up may be of a similar ilk. But sometimes you find wonderful snippets of tales such as the following, which I can find no other info about this at all, but who would make this up? In 2014, a Hatton Garden security guard was told to stay away from a traveller site in Blackmore in Essex, after leaving strange items there. 25-year-old Michael Porter reportedly drove through the site at 2.30am, blasting out the noise of voodoo rave in a small grey people carrier, whilst wearing a V for Vendetta mask. On one occasion, Porter left a black holdall which contained a Bible verse, a pair of trainers that had been stabbed, and a live shotgun shell, whilst early the following morning, a Scalectric set was left, as well as two Bibles, a single lit candle, and photographs of a Russian boxer who had been murdered. Later that day, police went to the site and saw Porter making gestures while carrying a cross and wearing his V for Vendetta mask. He was later handed a £300 fine for his bizarre behaviour and told not to go to the Oak Tree Traveller's site. Now, you read something like that, a mere snippet, as I said, I could find no other information on this at all, and you think, what? I have got to get that into an episode. And so I've curated a few accounts together that are also bizarre, with one in particular a bit sad too, I thought, to bring to you here. No need whatsoever for any warnings this time around, and so please join the true crime enthusiast, paraphrasing from some dear friends of the show, for an episode I've entitled, They Really Do Walk Among Us. On the evening of Wednesday, April 13th, 2016, much of Cardiff city centre was brought to a standstill for hours after a man climbed onto the roof of the NCP car park opposite the end of Queen Street and threatened to jump off. Police were called to Dumfries Place at around 6.45pm and asking people to stay away from the scene, the NCP car park was then closed off with roads all around the car park, including Dumfries Place, Station Terrace and Churchill Way, also roadblocked. As a result, there was a knock-on effect to traffic with delays reported in neighbouring areas and Cardiff bus services were severely disrupted, with delays and diversions to their services. Drivers who had used this car park were also unable to get to their cars parked inside, with one, Donna James from St Athen, describing Some people have taken a train home, and I was talking to a family from London earlier who've booked into a hotel overnight. People are worried they'll be charged for the parking overnight if they leave. I've been waiting here because I need to get to my car to drive home. I can't get the train because there's no station next to my house. Onlookers gathering to watch the unfolding drama described a number of police officers seen on top of the car park, inching their way towards a man seen standing on the edge. The incident drew to a close some three and a half hours later, when at around 10.20pm, the man was seen stepping away from the edge and was apprehended by officers. Minutes later, the cordon was removed and all roads were reopened, 
with a spokesperson for South Wales Police later confirming that the man had been taken into custody, saying, He was already wanted for another matter, and he has been arrested with regards to this outstanding matter. Now, though they didn't specify the matter as to which he'd been arrested over, it was also confirmed that the force was providing him with the necessary mental health care whilst in custody. What went largely unnoticed in all the confusion of this were events nearby that were the culmination of the first account of the episode, because talking someone down safely from jumping would be an utter bollocks opening, wouldn't it? And is best told through what Cardiff Magistrates Court heard just two days later, when 35-year-old former call centre worker Owen Lloyd Houston from Pendlach Road in Whitchurch in Cardiff stood in the dock facing three charges of actual bodily harm, two counts of assault by beating, one count of assaulting a constable in the execution of their duty, and one count of criminal damage in excess of £5,000, at the first source business in Oakley House on the corner of Park Place and Boulevard de Nantes in Cardiff. Prosecutor David Cook told the court how Hewson had exploded at his place of work the previous Wednesday, after he'd been drinking throughout the day. Mr Cook said, He assaulted two members of staff by pushing them, and then exploded into a rage. He caused around £18,000 worth of damage to keyboards and monitors, even pulling one monitor from its mount. The prosecutor said Houston then went out onto the street outside his workplace, continuing, he then kicked a police van which was there as police had set up cordons in the area due to another incident. A PC went to speak to the defendant to try and calm him down, while another went to look at the damage at the rear of the vehicle. The defendant panicked and pushed the officer before throwing a number of punches. A quote from a witness was also read to the court which described, I saw a man punch a police officer. He went wild on him. The witness continued how the officer landed flat on the floor and looked unconscious and lifeless following the assault. Mr Cook then described how a second police officer came to aid the injured officer and was herself struck by one punch to the throat. Mr Cook told the court, This was a serious and sustained assault on a police officer. These officers were in uniform in the street acting as public guardians. This was after Houston also caused serious damage and committed a serious assault on his colleagues. It is for these reasons that the prosecution invite the court to send the case to Cardiff Crown Court. Solicitor John Pennington, representing Houston, told the court that Houston accepted all of these charges against him, as well as the fact that the case would be destined to be sent to a Crown Court, saying... Mr Houston himself is at a loss as to what happened on that day. He's very sorry, but understands this matter is beyond this court's jurisdiction. He makes no bail application and understands various agencies will be looking into this matter. Houston was then remanded in custody ahead of sentencing at Cardiff Crown Court on April the 29th, but it was actually to be May the 27th following a delay in proceedings that the full story was heard, when Paul Hewitt Casey, prosecuting, told Cardiff Crown Court that Houston's behaviour on April the 13th was 
somewhat out of character for him after he lost his temper after he was asked to take a call for his colleague at First Source Solutions, saying, He was at work at 8 o'clock when he stood up at his workstation. He has thrown his headset down, shouted out, Fuck Disney! Then entered some sort of rage, whereby he has walked through the premises, smashing up equipment. He's taken computer monitors and thrown them, causing damage, and he's taken whiteboards and thrown those. Most staff backed away from Houston in fear as he continued ranting, mostly about Disney and destroying any office equipment to hand. Mr. Hewitt continued. He continued shouting out, Fuck Disney! constantly. One colleague tried to calm him down, but he continued to walk through the premises, smashing up equipment as he went, even damaging a wall at one point. When confronted by a security guard who was called to deal with him, the colleague stepped between them and Houston pushed her in the chest. He also pushed his manager, although neither of his work colleagues were severely injured, and then, heading out of the building, still bizarrely raging about Disney. When he got outside, he found police there, dealing with the would-be jumper I described earlier. Houston then went straight up and kicked the nearest police van, for which he was spoken to by an officer, who he swore at, before apologising and saying, I'm sorry, I'm having a bad day, I've just been sacked. You think so? The court heard that the officer in question, PC Gareth Hillier, had agreed to let the matter go, provided there was no damage to the police vehicle, but Houston had paid no heed to this, and had instead suddenly attacked him. Mr Hewitt continued. A female officer then saw the defendant strike the officer to the face. She described a windmill-type action of punches made to the officer's head. PC Hillier was knocked to the floor and became unconscious. He was treated for a gash to the head and had three stitches put in it. When the other officer, PC Venice Hacker, had stepped in to help, she was struck to the throat by Houston. Mr Hewitt added that other officers who arrived then employed CS spray to try and stop Houston but it had little effect on him. In fact, it was the police who suffered more because of it. He got free of the officers and their attempts to stop him and ran off, but was later apprehended by other officers, who were by that time very cautious, added Mr Hewitt. When arrested, in later interview, Houston told police that he'd started his call centre shift at 2pm that afternoon, but during his meal break, he went to a pub and drank two pints, a double whiskey, another half pint, another whiskey, and another half pint. Going back to the office, Houston told police he later just exploded, as we've heard. Mr. Hewitt said, When he got outside, he describes himself as being out of his mind. Ruth Smith KC, defending Houston, said, it is accepted on his behalf that the totality of the incident passes the custody threshold. She argued that a suspended sentence could be imposed because of Houston's guilty pleas and his having already spent several weeks in custody, claiming that on release he would be able to search for work to pay compensation, adding, Unfortunately, his conviction is going to cause him some problems. I've asked if he has savings, and he does not.
Passing sentence on Houston, presiding Mr Justice Timothy Brennan Casey said, I would unhesitatingly pass a sentence of imprisonment immediately had you not already been in custody for six weeks. Even then, I would not pass a sentence as short as that. He then handed down suspended sentences of 12 months for the ABH on PC Hillier, of four months for the assault on his colleague, PC Hacker, of three months for the two common assaults on his colleagues, and two months for the criminal damage, which had totaled some £15,859. He also ordered that Houston perform 160 hours of unpaid work and pay £700 compensation for the attack on PC Hillier and £500 for the assault of his colleague. Now, we all have a shit day sometimes, granted, but Houston was to never explain the reasoning behind his bad day or his destructive actions, and nor to the most pressing question, why Disney was so at fault. From a misguided obsession with Disney then, bizarrely, to a misguided obsession with lint chocolate now, when, a week before Houston had appeared in court, in an entirely unrelated matter, 55-year-old mother of three, Wendy Allison Purser of Little Russets in Brentwood, appeared at Basildon Crown Court on the 20th of May 2016, charged with contaminating or interfering with boxes of lint, lind or chocolates on nine separate occasions between March the 10th and May the 16th, 2015, to which she pleaded guilty. An Essex Police spokesperson had said at the time, An investigation was launched by Essex Police in April 2015 following contact from the Food Standard Agency. We recovered nine 200-gram boxes of chocolates which had been tampered with. The chocolates in the boxes had been replaced with wooden, glass, plastic or wall balls indeed now frustratingly how she was traced is not reported but it is reported that when police raided purser's home they found a glue gun a selection of small rubber balls and marbles several boxes of lint chocolates as well as some receipts to be used to return them the court heard Purser had admitted contaminating chocolates bought from Asda and Wilco stores around Essex, with police finding that Purser had contaminated chocolates bought twice at Pips Hill and once at Eastgate Asda stores in Basildon, twice at Asda at Lakeside, twice at Wilco in Brentwood, and twice at Billericay's Waitrose. Porter would buy and then unwrap the lint chocolates, throw the truffle away, and instead swap them for small objects about the same size, such as marbles, balls of wool, and wooden or rubber balls, then carefully rewrap the object in the lint lind or cellophane. She would then carefully reseal the box from the bottom, and return the apparently unopened box to the stores, claiming it was unwanted, where each time she received a full refund. Unsuspecting staff would then return the box, filled with foreign objects, to the empty shelves. The bizarre case put the public at risk, and one man had almost choked to death after swallowing a rubber ball on April the 5th of the previous year, after he had purchased what he thought were a box of chocolates at Asda in Lakeside. Raj Joshi Casey, prosecuting, told Basildon Crown Court, 
He said, at about 9pm I was sat on the sofa in the lounge watching TV. At this time the only light that was on was coming from the TV. I opened the truffle and put it in my mouth. I normally eat them in one mouthful. Once it was in my mouth, I immediately began choking. It had gone to the back of my throat and I couldn't get it out. His partner then frantically slapped his back and he put his fingers down his throat until the ball came out. The light was put on and he saw it was in fact a green camouflage bouncy ball. He opened another six and found they were all bouncy balls. He said, I tried to crush them and found out that none of them were truffles. Another incident occurred when a woman bought a contaminated box at Waitrose in Billericay on April the 14th, with Mr Joshy saying, She opened a box and her daughter took out a truffle, unwrapped it and realised it was a rubber ball. When all of the others were unwrapped, they were found to be more of the same, save for the fact that one of them was a glass marble. However, Diana Piggott Casey, defending Purser, quoted from two psychiatric reports which both stated that Purser was mentally ill, saying, Mrs Purser accepts that a glass marble is dangerous, and she also accepts that it could have had severe economic issues to the company. It appears she had something of an obsession with chocolate. She often fixates on things, and went through a period of buying chocolate and returning it, sometimes before she even left the store. She made no financial gain, she had no grievance against Lint, and was not targeting a particular store, as chocolates were bought from a number of stores. Sentence in person, Judge David Owen Jones said, This, in my judgment, was a well-planned and methodical offence which could have resulted in serious injury, or even fatality. It is clear that from the psychiatric reports that at the time of the offence you were suffering from a severe mental illness, triggered in the view of the doctor by stress that you had experienced over the preceding two years. You were psychotic or manic at the time of these offences, and you have other health problems that include osteoporosis, heart disease and diabetes. Purser was then given a 12-month prison sentence, suspended for two years, for contaminating the food over a four-month period the previous year. Mr Justice Owen Jones also ordered her to attend a rehabilitation course of up to 40 days, to pay prosecution costs of £750, plus to undergo immediate mental health treatment. CPS East of England Deputy Chief Crown Prosecutor Frank Ferguson said, following the case, when she was arrested, it was not clear what Mrs. Purser's motives were for doing this. She and her family do not have any connection to Lint or any apparent reason for a grievance against the firm. No blackmail demands were made either to Lint or to the stores where she returned the chocolates. Fortunately, Wendy Purser's actions in contaminating boxes of Lint Lindor chocolates in stores in southeast Essex were quickly discovered and no harm came to anyone. But what she did by contaminating these chocolates put members of the public, and especially children, at real and serious risk of choking. Contaminating food in this way is a serious matter, and the charge we selected after considering the evidence against Mrs Purser reflects this as it carries a maximum sentence of 10 years imprisonment. I think she was fair lucky to get off with that, don't you? The mind boggles, doesn't it?
Another oddball now, when back in January 2002, then 25-year-old Richard William Cove, described as a hospital cleaner at the time, pleaded guilty at Wellingborough Magistrates Court to causing a public nuisance by making 63 telephone calls to 19 different women, some of them teenagers, and pretending to be interested in buying their horses, but always steering the conversation around to their feet. Michael Joyce Casey, prosecuting, said Cove, then of Cedar Avenue in Worthing, and who had sometimes used the amazing false name of Michael Foote, had told police that he'd made thousands of calls like this. He told police there was nothing sexual in his actions and that he got no sexual gratification from the calls. He said he had just been into feet since he was quite small. Mr Joyce went on to describe how Cove would scour the advertising pages of the equestrian and hunting magazine Horse and Hounds, looking for women selling horses before calling them, sometimes disguising his voice and sometimes using his false name. He would then ring, and while pretending to be interested in making a sale or a purchase, would ultimately steer the conversation around to the women's feet. Cove would ask what size shoes they wore, if their feet gave them trouble, and even if they smelt. Mr Joyce added that while some of Cove's victims had been able to laugh the experience off, others had felt very distressed and frightened by his behaviour. Selwyn Shapiro, defending Cove, said his client had learning difficulties and had suffered a traumatic family loss at an early age, saying, He now lives with his mother, and the problems of his early life, I would say, may have been a trigger for his actions. Sentencing Cove to 80 hours community service, District Judge Jan Gilemma said that a psychiatric report on Cove had suggested he was not a danger to the public, adding, The report's conclusion is simply that you are a foot fetishist. Of course, it is the way that you chose to pursue that fetish that has seen you brought before a criminal court. Now, he may not have been a danger to the public, but he was to prove a pain in the arse, and this behaviour was to repeat on a much larger scale, as fast forward now to September 2021, when the same then 45-year-old Richard William Cove admitted a count of making malicious communications to Worthing Magistrates Court in that he often impersonated an elderly woman during thousands of prank calls he'd made, which cost the taxpayer £21,869.21, saying he'd been making the calls for his own enjoyment. Cove abused NHS 111, the free telephone and online service for the public to get advice on non-emergency medical situations, and whilst pretending to be an OAP, he would pretend to have foot problems to get bizarre sexual pleasure from talking about them to operators and would often try to get an extra thrill by getting the call handler to talk about their own feet. He provided false personal details and medical ailments during hundreds of his calls to the hotline and which many times triggered follow-up appointments from medical professionals. He would even often use the very same telling false name of Michael Foot. For what else are you going to call yourself if thinking about a plate gets you harder than the Guardian Cryptic, are you? 
Cove's nuisance calls to the 111 service had started in April 2019, when NHS 111 had received a complaint from a member of the public who reported that he kept receiving calls from clinicians from the service, despite never contacting him. NHS 111 staff investigated and established that a nuisance caller had been calling the free advice line and providing false personal details and false medical ailments, many of which had resulted in these return calls from clinicians and in some cases ambulances being dispatched. A police spokesperson said later, It was established that between April 2019 and April 2021, the Trust's NHS 111 service received 1,263 calls from a nuisance caller who provided false personal details, false telephone numbers and false ailments. The NHS have also found that this caller has caused expense totalling £21,869.21. Police said all the calls had a common theme of either the caller providing one of the same small numbers of addresses or the caller changing his voice to sound like an elderly woman and talking about her own height and feet then going on to ask the NHS 111 call taker about their feet. Several unsuspecting members of the public were phoned at all hours of the day and night after Cove gave out fake phone numbers and addresses with many ambulances sent to homes in the southeast, London, and the northwest. And in one case, after Cove gave false information, firefighters smashed their way into one home, causing £250 worth of damage. In recordings later released by the Southeast Coast Ambulance Service, Cove can be heard during one call telling the handler that his name is Sarah Cheeseman and that he is suffering from very sweaty, smelly feet. On another call, Cove affects his voice to sound like an elderly woman and tells the call handler he's been interrupted by his daughter and then later by his husband, who is trying to get me out of bed, he claimed. On that occasion, Cove said he had slipped and twisted his knee two days previous and later on the same call, he tells the NHS 111 handler her voice sounds familiar, adding, you're a very pleasant lady to talk to. They're not all like that. On a third call that was recorded, he says his name is Paolo Duvio and that he has a bite on the side of the foot before telling the handler that he has bare feet. Eventually, police identified Cove as the caller and arrested him at his home in Boundary Road in Heen in Worthing, where he'd been making the calls from. PC David Quayle told the court. Police inquiries identified the offender's phone number and arrested Cove at his home from where he'd been making the calls on his landline. He admitted making all the calls and that they were all for his own enjoyment and personal benefit. Natalie Ropke for the CPS told magistrates in Worthing. He was asking the call handlers about their feet and height and telling them about his feet. He admitted a sexual foot fetish which he indulges in during the calls. He said he is aroused by feet and is especially aroused by the thought of the call handler's feet. After pleading guilty to one charge of making malicious communications, Cove was given a 16-week prison sentence suspended for 24 months at Worthing. 
He was also made to join a sex offenders treatment program, do 200 hours unpaid work and complete 30 rehabilitation days, as well as paying £2,000 compensation to the NHS. Cove, who reportedly runs an eBay selling business from home, said following his conviction, What I did was very silly. It started with genuine calls. I made it clear I wasn't getting off on the calls. I made up phone numbers and addresses. I've never requested any ambulances. I did have a pain in my shoulder, so maybe they thought I was having a heart attack. I don't know. Yeah, that's a shamble of bollocks if I've ever heard one. Commenting on the case later, David Davis, the head of integrated governance at the service at West Sussex, a well-boring sounding job, said, Just one false or malicious call puts lives at risk and diverts our resources and attention from patients in genuine need of emergency care. The impact of this individual's actions should not be underestimated. The nature of the calls also caused unnecessary distress to our staff who continually work tirelessly to get people the assistance they require. We would like to thank our police colleagues and everyone involved in ensuring Mr Cove was held responsible for his actions. You kind of get the feeling that this won't really put him off though, don't you? If he's been in court at least twice for this over the years, with a near 20 year gap in between, and it's what floats his boat more than anything else, isn't it? I feel he'll be up there again. Down to Plymouth Crown Court now, where in January 2019, 45-year-old Andrew Coates of No Fixed Abode, and appearing via video link from the secure Langdon unit near Dawlish in Devon, went on trial charged with burglary of a plush house in Brixton near Plymouth on March the 11th to March the 12th of the previous year, to which he pleaded not guilty. He also pleaded not guilty to criminal damage the same night by using the shower at the property and allowing it to flood the bathroom, as well as denying three alternative charges of theft. Run-of-the-mill case then, except his reason for denying the charges he faced in the face of clear-cut evidence against him was anything but run-of-the-mill, because Coates claimed that the house was actually his and it had been given to him by her of the tattooed arse, pop star Cheryl Tweedy, after she bought it the day before for £12.5 million and had given it to him. Oh yes. Adrian Chaplin Casey, opening the case for the CPS, said Coates was arrested on March the 12th after the residents and owners of the property, Dean and Alison Piper, returned to their home in the morning in separate cars after being away for the evening. Mr Chaplin told the jury that Coates appeared on several hours of CCTV footage from the couple's home security cameras after first arriving at 9.40pm the night before, carrying a rucksack and a sleeping bag and that footage showed him moving from room to room in the house throughout the night at one point being picked up inside the home in just a shirt and boxer shorts and adding that Coates took a shower there but had left the water running and flooded the bathroom causing extensive damage to the furnishings. He was later seen stacking up items he'd selected, including an expensive projector, an Apple watch and various keys, in the hallway as if preparing to take them away, 
and was then spotted switching a watch he was wearing for Mr. Piper's Rolex Yachtmaster watch, worth more than £10,000. Mr. Chaplin added that Coates was later spotted in a detached garage on the property, inside which was a white Ferrari, and which Coates appeared to be looking for the keys for. He then returned indoors and spent the night in the house, adding, Mr. Coates said he'd been given the house which had been bought the previous day by Cheryl Tweedy. He had been given it by her during a conversation. Alison Piper told the jury that she returned home moments before her husband in separate cars at 9am the next morning to find Coates in her home casually eating a chocolate bar. She said that she'd asked the defendant who he was, but he'd replied, This is my house, what are you doing here? Mrs Piper added, He made me feel very uncomfortable, as if he resented my presence there. He made me feel as if I was intruding. He took a step towards me, and he stared at me very aggressively and assertively. Armed police shortly afterwards arrived and arrested Coates. Barry White KC for Coates, and as an aside, I know he's almost 20 years too late to be the big bad Barry White who was the walrus of love, but I really, really hope he addresses everyone with, baby, asked Mrs. Piper what she thought of the suggestion Coates was offering that she'd sold the house to Cheryl Tweedy on March the 10th, to which she replied, no, I did not. Of course she did not. Coates then told the jury over video link that he genuinely believed the former Girls Aloud star had bought the house in Brixton for him, and that Cheryl's voice had told him to go to the house while he was staying with a friend in Plymouth City Centre, saying, I have a mental health problem and have had psychosis and delusional disorder in the past. I was of the honest impression that I'd been given the house by Cheryl Tweedy. I met her in London in 2010 at the Ritz. I was in London for the weekend and met her three times. Asked what the nature of the relationship between him and Cheryl Tweedy was by Mr. White, Coates said, I'd rather not divulge that. At the time I went to the house, I thought she was looking out for me. I was sat on the sofa in a friend's living room when I heard she was outside. She wanted me to go somewhere safe. Coates had then gone to the house, believing that it, and everything in the house, were gifts for him, from the former X Factor judge. When it was put to Coates that he was captured on CCTV in a detached garage containing a white Ferrari to which he appeared to be looking for the keys for, he responded, I was looking for the registration documents to prove it was mine. I had the keys in my pocket. If I wanted to take it, I would have taken it. I would have unplugged the charger that charges the Kurs system and driven off. He continued, I absolutely wasn't intending to do any damage. I slept in a bed, and when I came downstairs the next morning, the gifts had gone. Well, almost every gift, although Coates claimed he didn't know how Dean Piper's Rolex Yachtmaster watch had ended up still on his wrist when he was taken into custody. Coates told the court, I was confused and panicking at that point. Things were not making much sense. It's all quite embarrassing to me now as I was not in a good way. The court heard that Coates had been diagnosed with persistent delusional disorder, a genuine, even if deluded, belief that the house and everything in it were his could have provided a defence to dishonesty, and earlier, 
trial judge recorded James Newton Price had told the jury, do not hold it against him that he has a mental disorder. But the jury found him guilty of both the burglary and the criminal damage in just over an hour by unanimous verdicts. Mr Justice Newton Price told Coates that the offence was troubling and adding that luckily the Pipers were out that night, only returning at 9am the next morning to see Coates casually walking around their home eating a chocolate bar. For had they been in, it could have led to violence or perhaps injury. Summarising a statement from Mrs Piper, the judge told Coates, She expresses that she doesn't feel comfortable in her own home. The crime was a violation of her privacy. You slept in her bed and rummaged through her clothes. She feels scared after living in their family home of 17 years. They are now contemplating leaving that family home. The judge added, While the jury may well have accepted that you have a mental disorder, they took the view that nonetheless, you knew what you were doing. Recorder Newton Price said that there were signs that Coates' condition was improving at the unit he was in, and so then passed an indefinite hospital order, meaning Coates was continually detained at the Langdon unit near Dawlish, and would not be released until doctors agree it is safe to do so. Let's hope that he gets the help that he very clearly needs. Now also clearly needing help is now 53-year-old David Hampson in my final account of the episode and what is a strange but sad case from Swansea for since 2014 he has collected more than 20 convictions including breaching criminal court orders, public nuisance orders and multiple counts of willfully obstructing free passage along the highway to the point where he is currently midway through serving a 42-month prison sentence for his latest offence. Where Hampson fits into this episode is that his behaviour is repetitive like a mechanism. It is the same, quite able offence in usually the exact same location all the time and that each time he is intercepted, arrested, charged, interviewed and appeared before a court, he hasn't spoken a single word, although he can speak quite ably. Hampson began his bizarre behaviour in 2014 when he was given a conditional discharge for obstructing a highway, Swansea's busy Dilabesh Street, but had immediately gone and obstructed the same road in the city again. This occurred several times over the next few months and was dealt with mainly at magistrate's court level, although resulting ultimately the following year in a brief custodial sentence for his sixth such offence. However, on Tuesday the 8th of December 2015, Hampson was back in court, this time Swansea Crown Court, which heard he'd been released from prison on July the 30th and immediately went out and did the same thing. James Hartson Casey, prosecuting, told the court how Hampson draped himself over the front bonnet of a Royal Mail van on Dealerbesh Street, with his arms outstretched and his face pressed against the windscreen, forcing the vehicle to halt he said. Car drivers were sounding their horns and some got out to see what was happening as traffic congestion built up. PC Kevin Roberts, who was called to the scene, told the court he first suspected Hampson may have been involved in an accident and asked him if he needed help, but that he said nothing. He said, 
I then took him by the arm and led him to the side of the road. PC Roberts then took him to nearby Swansea Central Police Station, where several members of staff there recognised Hampson from previous obstruction incidents. Hampson, who had no defence representative because he would not speak to instruct counsel, and who had said nothing to fellow prisoners on remand, court staff or police upon interview, was found guilty of breaching the criminal behaviour orders stopping him from obstructing traffic, his seventh conviction. Presiding Mr Justice Paul Thomas Casey told the jury, This is an unusual case in that the defendant has, for reasons of his own, chosen not to say anything. Now, earlier that day, under what is believed to be Victorian legislation, another jury had found Hampson guilty of mute of malice, which differs to what the court describes as mute by visitation of God, meaning to be mute because of physical or psychological illness, but rather, mute of malice means being deliberately mute. During this separate hearing, two members of staff who deal with bringing prisoners into court for a private security firm had testified that Hampson could indeed speak when he wanted to, because he'd spoken to them. One said he'd requested a coffee, and the other said he'd asked to use the toilet. The jury took around five minutes to come to a unanimous guilty verdict. During the trial, Hampson, who was remanded in custody, bowed his head and said nothing when asked by the judge at each stage if he wanted to ask any questions or say anything to the jury to put his side of the case. After he was found guilty, Hampson, of no fixed address, was told by the judge, If you want to write down the reasons for your actions, for instance, if you consider prison to be your home, and it's a case of, I haven't got a home, I want to go to prison, let me know that, or some other reason. Hampson did nothing. Judge Thomas asked Prosecutor Mr Hartson to make inquiries with South Wales Police about the possibility of the defendant being sectioned under the Mental Health Act and adjourning sentencing. He also asked if it would be possible for the court to examine Hampson's medical records in an attempt to get to the root of his behaviour. When he appeared back before the court for sentencing on Monday the 5th of April 2016, Hampson who again had no defence representative and who had said nothing to fellow prisoners on remand or court staff or anyone in the run-up to his sentence, was given a 36-week jail sentence by Judge Thomas, as well as being made the subject of the first criminal behaviour order, known as a Crasbo, issued in Swansea in an attempt to stop him. The delay in sentence had been due to the compiling of two psychiatric reports on Hampson, with one psychiatrist assessing Hampson as suffering from schizophrenia, but the other taking an opposite view that he was of sound mind and was using his traffic blocking, silent behaviour, as a misguided way of drawing attention to himself and his poor financial situation. Judge Thomas remarked that it may have been better if the psychiatric reports had both suggested hospital treatment as it could have brought this cycle of behaviour to an end in everyone's interests. However, the court was told there needed to be two psychiatric reports suggesting treatment for a hospital order to be put in place, which seems wrong because if they both differ, wouldn't you have a third compiled to make a definitive decision 
based on the prevailing diagnosis of the three. Common sense or what, eh? Hampson had been released from prison on December the 14th of that year, and had immediately the same day gone and done the very same thing, in the very same location. When he was back in court on the 27th of April 2017, Karina Hughes Casey, prosecuting, said that at 5.20pm on December the 14th, police were alerted to reports of a man standing in the middle of De La Beche Street, just yards from Swansea Central Police Station, stopping traffic, and an officer called found Hampson standing in front of a car, holding on to its grill. He was arrested and taken to the station, where he remained silent during the subsequent interview, charges and remand. The only witness called in the trial, the officer in question, confirmed the events of the day to the jury. Miss Hughes told the court that what happened the previous December put Hampson in breach of the previously issued Crasbo, which prohibited him from causing an unnecessary obstruction on the highway. Hampson, who was once again unrepresented, was asked by presiding judge Peter Haywood Casey if he wanted to challenge the evidence or say anything in his defence but he once again merely stared at the floor of the dock and remained silent. A jury took less than eight minutes to find him guilty, and he was jailed yet again for this. Released in June 2018, the same cycle repeated, the very same day he was released, and back in the same court in September of that year, it was a proper case of déjà vu. Hampson remained silent throughout the entire hearing in Swansea Crown Court, and before he stood trial, he again faced a separate jury over whether he was mute of malice or not. Addressing the members of the jury, Judge Haywood, the same judge, told the jury, This is in many ways an unusual case which you have to determine. Normally, you have to determine whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty. But here, you've been charged with determining whether this defendant is silent for reasons beyond his control, or whether he is being silent by way of deliberate choice, you are not going to determine his guilt. Corrine Hughes Casey, once again prosecuting, told the jury the Crown's case was that Hampson can speak but chooses not to, explaining that this behaviour had developed over a number of years, though it was not known why, as Hampson would not explain. The Crown's case was supported by evidence from three witnesses. Firstly, a prison officer from HMP Swansea who was asked if Hampson had ever spoken to him and who said that although Hampson didn't talk much, he had heard the defendant speak on a number of occasions, including asking prison staff for items such as tobacco and batteries for his cell TV remote control. Whilst another prison officer said the defendant had once asked him if he could see a prison nurse, then requested paracetamol, and a Swansea police officer who came into contact with Hampson told the court he offered the defendant a cup of tea, and Hampson replied that he would have one later. After each witness spoke, Judge Haywood asked Hampson if he wanted to ask any questions or challenge anything they'd said, but each time he said nothing. The judge then asked Hampson if he wished to submit any medical evidence or documentation for the jury to consider, and again, there was no response. After finding Hampson mute of malice once again, the jury then heard the second case. They heard that Hampson was accused of breaching the criminal behaviour order imposed upon him 
which prohibits him from unnecessarily obstructing the highway or any public place in England and Wales, and which was in place until April 2022, by standing in the middle of the road near Swansea Central Police Station on June 15th, blocking the flow of traffic. Miss Hughes then read the sole evidence to the court, a statement by PC Rob Fisher, who said he saw a man, identified as Hampson, standing in the middle of the road in front of a lorry at the junction of Grove Place and Mount Pleasant, and a large build-up of traffic. He said he took Hampson by his left arm and led him out of the road and onto the pavement. Judge Haywood then asked Hampson if he wanted to say anything, make any legal representations, or have him ask something on his behalf, but he again said nothing. The jury found Hampson, who by this time had amassed 14 previous convictions for some 22 offences, guilty after seven minutes' deliberation. Reflecting on what a sad case it was, Judge Haywood told the jury, I'm sure you're wondering, as I am, what this is all about. I wish we could get to the bottom of this, but Mr. Hampson simply won't communicate with me or with others. He won't engage with probation or other agencies, and won't cooperate with psychiatric reports. We've tried to get to the bottom of this, but to no avail. I don't know what this crusade is all about. I don't want to send him to prison, but we have no other choice. He keeps repeatedly breaching court orders, and I know that if I were to allow him his liberty today, he would go and do the same thing again. I ask myself, what is the cost to the taxpayer, to you and I, of keeping him in custody? Turning to Hampson, the judge said, In my view, it is only a matter of time before you step in front of a car and a driver takes evasive action and somebody is injured. This court has done everything it can over the last few years to find out what the problem is and try to assist you, and you pay it no heed. You have a selfish vendetta. Hampson was then sentenced to three years imprisonment and had his Crasbo renewed, now to be in place until 2025. Exactly how much of this sentence he served before release is undocumented, but on the 3rd of December 2021, at about 4.45pm, Swansea police officers were called to reports of a man standing in the road on De La Beche Street and found Hampson standing in the middle of the carriageway near the Tesco Express shop, near the junction with Mount Pleasant, blocking the traffic, for although the lights were on green, because of his presence in the road, vehicles at the junction were stationary. They later described how they found Hampson in the middle lane of three lanes, standing with his arms at his side and his head bowed, and with a hold-all-type bag on the floor at his feet. With no resistance, Hampson was led to the side of the road by the PC and initially detained under the Mental Health Act, before being arrested for breaching the criminal behaviour order he was under. As usual, he made no reply when cautioned, nor when he was subsequently charged, and likewise remained silent the following day when he appeared at Swansea Magistrates Court, before being remanded into custody, and said nothing during a further pre-trial hearing at Swansea Crown Court on May the 13th, 2022. When Hampson's latest offence came to trial, it was almost identical to what you've heard so far. But at previous such trials where Hampson was given the chance to cross-examine witnesses who said they'd seen him talk, or to question any evidence presented, 
On this occasion, he was not present as he'd refused to leave his cell at Swansea Prison. Again, there was evidence from prison officers testifying that although Hampson was, in their words, not a talkative chap, he could 100% speak, saying Hampson was a polite man who would say thank you after getting what he'd asked for, and the jury deliberated for a matter of minutes, finding Hampson mute of malice once again. So, the matter went ahead in his absence, with prosecution barrister Hannah George Casey informing the court that a not guilty plea had been issued for Hampson, done so automatically because, as he chooses to remain silent, he cannot instruct the barrister to act on his behalf. The same jury then sat in a trial to determine not Hampson's guilt, but whether he'd carried out the act as charged, what is known as a trial of issue. The jurors heard evidence from the PC and from one of the special constables who dealt with Hampson on the afternoon in question, the sole evidence once again, and after a further brief period of deliberation, the jury found Hampson had committed the act alleged in the charge, namely he had obstructed a highway in contravention of the criminal behaviour order which prohibited such behaviour. In his absence, presiding judge Hugh Reese Casey deferred sentence and ordered a further psychiatric report be prepared into Hampson in the hope it could shed light on his behaviour finally and to suggest any possible help that he could be offered, though noting it was uncertain whether Hampson would cooperate with the process. Now, in the end, he didn't comply with it, refusing to say a word to the psychiatrist so no interview could take place, and in response, the court ordered that his medical records be produced and given to the psychiatrist so at least some information was known. The case came back to court for sentencing at the beginning of August 2022 upon completion of psychiatric reports that concluded that though Hampson's mutism was, and is, selective and deliberate, there may be social stresses and financial stresses that contribute to his decision not to talk. However, the doctor said he was not able to make a diagnosis of any psychiatric or other condition which would mean a hospital order could be suggested as a way of dealing with Hampson. Judge Reese said there may well be social stresses involved in his decisions not to speak, but in his view, Hampson's silence was the result of breathtaking arrogance and insolence on his part, and warned Hampson that if he continued to breach the criminal behaviour order he is subject to, it was inevitable that he would spend more and more time in prison. Hampson was then sentenced to a further three and a half years in prison to serve up to half of this period in custody before being released on licence to serve the remainder in the community. Hampson, as you can imagine, remained silent throughout the entire sentencing hearing, not responding from when asked to confirm his name to when the judge asked him if there was anything he wished to say following his sentencing. He is currently still serving the half of this sentence in custody, but it is likely that when he's released to serve the remainder in the community, this seems very much, well, there's no seam about it, it's a merry-go-round of offending, and very likely, the name David Hampson will sooner rather than later be back in the news because he's done the same thing once again. As news of his offending has begun to circulate around the internet, people have flooded to Reddit in confusion over Hampson's repetitive road blocking, 
to try and figure out why he continues to commit the same offence. One suggested, The guy's homeless, prison's better than the street. Whilst another resolved, Failure in our approach to mental health care. We've got to do something more than prison for these people. I completely agree with both of those statements because both seem common sense, don't they? A bit of a mixed bag of strange stories this time around here, hence the title, They Really Do Walk Among Us, being careful of copyright to my friends Ben and Rosie there. And I have polarising thoughts concerning the various cases I've mentioned here. Porter, well, that's just an oddball indeed, isn't it? It's one of those snippets that I couldn't ignore because it was just so deliciously bananas sounding. Even though in a more serious note, behaviour such as that smacks to me of someone with mental health issues. The same, I think, can be said with Houston. We've all had bad days before, haven't we? But I'm sure not all of us have been on the lash in our lunch break and then gone all full Incredible Hulk back in the workplace over being asked to take a call when he was a call centre operative and I think he was unbelievably lucky to get off with what he did. Where the fuck Disney bit came in, who knows, but again, it smacks of someone having a mental episode to me and I would hope psychiatric help came his way following his conviction. I must point out here also that while I've engineered the accounts in this episode to come across as somewhat more light-hearted than the grim start we've had to the series, it doesn't always have to be Grizzly Murder of the Week. I am in no way making light or fun of mental illness. It's something that's very close to my heart that I have great empathy with people who suffer with it, to the extent that I'm one of the trained mental health first aiders at the company that I work for. So I'm not having a laugh or making light at the expense of the people involved here, it's more the circumstances involved. Well, except Cove that is. That oddball is exempt from what I've just said, and I couldn't muster up any sympathy for him, foot freak. Nor so much Purser, who despite her ailments and it being reported that she was suffering mentally at the time of her offending, her actions display an unreal amount of premeditation and determination. And she must have realised the consequences of what she was doing. She even admitted that she knew the risks and again was incredibly lucky to get off with what she did. I don't think it was anywhere near severe enough. A certain custodial sentence required there. Coming on to Cove, reading the whole account when I researched it, I was like, fair enough. We all have our select certain shenanigans that flick the switch more than other things. Say nothing here, <clears throat> wet hair. But services like 111 are stretched thin enough as it is right now due to cuts and strikes and the aftermath of the pandemic. And midway through it, Cove was wasting time, effort and resources getting himself off due to his odd fetish. Wasting appointments that others could genuinely have used and getting ambulances sent here, there and everywhere. When how many horror stories have you heard concerning ambulance waiting times now? I wouldn't have suspended any sentence for him and would have ensured that he was on the sex offenders register for a number of years. In fact, I think the only decent thing about his sentence was the fine that he got, and even then, it could have been bigger. Best lessons are learned hard and all that. Indulge in your oddball fantasies somewhere where it doesn't cost the taxpayer 
or put people's lives at well-being and risk, you weirdo. I do have a degree, a degree of sympathy with Coates, for he is clearly someone who does suffer mentally and is somewhere that he can hopefully obtain treatment for the demons he faces. And if you clearly believe that Cheryl Tweedy, or Cole, or whatever her bloody name is, goes around buying £12.5 million houses for every outdoor lager enthusiast that she comes across, or doesn't, to the point that you break into one and think everything in it is yours, even a white Ferrari, which I have to admit I couldn't see the appeal of myself, then you clearly do need that help, because otherwise, where does it stop? You could start believing anything is yours, couldn't you? Saying that though, I've been burgled myself in the past and it is horrible, it does leave you unsettled in your own home, so I can sympathise with the pipers there also completely. My greatest degree of sympathy, however, is for David Hampson, because that's just a sad case indeed, isn't it? Clearly someone who has mental health issues there, to be stuck in a cycle of such repetitive behaviour and to say nothing each time throughout. And I think the comments you heard that were posted on Reddit were spot on. This is someone of no fixed abode, largely homeless, with no mention of any family so to speak, and it's an easy conclusion to jump to that prison, three squares and warmth and a roof, is preferable to the streets, which he's found an easy, tried and tested method of ensuring he's there. It's also clear to see that something needs to be done to help Hampson, as I said before, don't go off two psychiatric reports if they differ, get a third and go with the consensus. Common sense that, or what? Prison seems to be a shelter for him, but in the long term, I would imagine a hospital ward would be the more beneficial solution, for I feel it's only a matter of time before himself, or others, are injured as a result of his behaviour. What do you think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the accounts I've brought you in the episode They Really Do Walk Among Us, which you can do so in the thread that's up on the True Crime Enthusiast Facebook discussion group page, not on Ben and Rosie's page, or through any of the show's social media links. Getting in touch with me is like Daredevil watching a bongo flick. It's not hard at all. And I'm always happy to shoot the breeze with you wherever. Love you folks, you make the show. Now it's Patreon week next, so I shall be back with the regular enthusiast at the beginning of next month, where I'm sure we will be back down some familiar dark paths. Every now and again here, you need to break the darkness up somewhat and get a bit light-hearted, do something different, perhaps even have a bit of a laugh with it if you can. For as I said before, it really doesn't have to be grisly murder of the week all the time, and it is necessary that every once in a while. Whilst it's been a bit off the norm, I hope it's an episode that you found interesting and informative still though, and I look forward to some thoughts and feedback. So what can we take from it overall as what we've learned, the enthusiast's final thought? Avoid certain roads in Swansea and Cardiff if you're ever driving there. Put the phone down if some oddball starts asking you about your feet. In some realities, Cheryl Tweedy will buy anyone anything. If you know Wendy Purser and ever get a box of chocolates from her as a gift, wang them straight in the bin. And of course, fuck Disney. With that, it's shut up and wrap up time here again. So all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. 
Wishing you all good and safe times, and me and my beloved black and white menace shall be back with you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.